captain shouted as he staggered down the hatch. Uh, yes. Uh, oh, yeah, that that uh, that is not just a casual thing there. Uh, uh, how many how many of you uh, <laughs> how many of you in your very very private memories you know like just things that are in your own life that uh, are basic to the to the thread and the warp and the woof the uh, very material of which your existence is made you now when you grow up or when you live in a family. There's all kinds of little things that are said within that family that become part of the family. They have nothing to do with anything else. I can tell you better by example. I can remember, for some reason, I don't know why, my mother used to hang over the sink, see? And at periodical moments, like, say, every couple of weeks, for no reason at all, she would say the following. I am lost, the captain shouted as he staggered down the hatch. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right, all right. This is a, it, it, now. Now I have never discussed this in public. Not that I was embarrassed or anything about it. It was just part of the scene. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, we are lost, he said. Not I am lost, but we are lost. The captain shouted, and and uh, my old man used to once in a while react to that. He'd say, "Oh, dry up," or you know, something like. Uh, uh, <laughs> because apparently this was meant as a kind of comment on their lives. I don't know, uh, but uh, never <laughs> being a kid, you didn't you didn't put that kind of implication on it. But obviously, it had some kind of uh, some kind of uh, statement on what had happened to them, which was again not even part. It was so part of their lives. They never you know they never told the kids this. You know, it all started out so great, and then look what happened. We produced these two cretins, you know, and all this stuff started to start. You know. Uh, Yes, there are private memories which go so private that even if you think you know them, you don't know them. <laughs> how do you, for example, do you have any idea how your old man felt when it was announced that you were born? No, you think you do. Now, wait a minute. This is one of the great illusions. You think you do because you have two behavior patterns, the public one and the private one. So during a certain period in history, it was always considered public for, uh, you know, for, for the person to be approving of the fact that a kid was born. But that doesn't have say anything about what he really thought. Oh, my God, no. This is it. <laughs> oh, my God, look at him. <laughs> you don't have any way of knowing. You, see, what I'm really saying is that there's no way for any of us to know what anybody else really seriously thinks. We know what he says. That's not the same thing. Uh, rarely does what you say coincide actually with what you think, because most people, when they think things, even their thoughts are private to themselves even. They don't want to admit anything to themselves. And it may not even be a thought, it's just a feeling. You know, a sinking feeling. Down in the quicksand you're going. Uh, like, <laughs> now, now, whatever that line was, we are lost, the captain shouted as he staggered down the hatch. Now, there was another one that we used to, that, that uh, was a very private saying like this, that uh, came out of the, came out of the, uh, out of, out of the air. Uh, all of a sudden, my old, my old man would sit there, see, and he'd take the paper, see, and he's looking around, he's sitting around. Well, look around, he's saying, notary sojak. 
Well, I know where that comes from. That came from Smokey Stover. Yes, he was not quoting a literary figure. He was quoting a comic strip figure. Yeah, notary Sojak means nothing. But the way he said it, it, he said it with such disgust that it did have meaning. (laughs) My mother had another one. Whenever anything was really going bad, you know, really, really, really bad scene going on all over again, she'd say, well, it's Uncle Tom's wedding all over again. Well, now, if you're curious what happened to Uncle Tom's wedding, Uncle Tom's wedding had become a legend because Uncle Tom's wedding wound up in a spectacular, gigantic fight in which four people were taken off and carted away to the jug. And it was just a total fiasco. Not only that, that the lady that my Uncle Tom married turned out to be a bimbo of the first water, stripped them clean like a, like a, like an ear of corn, and departed in the night. <laughs> so whenever, 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 that's a private reference. It would mean nothing to anybody else. So, so if, if something is happening outside, my mother's ring, boy, it's Uncle Tom's wedding all over again. That meant a whole thing to everybody in the family who knew about this fiasco. Now, you must have some of those private references, like Uncle Clifford's knee. Oh, come on. you got to think seriously about it. Like, uh, don't be a picky eater like Arlene. You mean you didn't even have private uh, comparisons like that? You had to. You just don't remember them. You had to, because, because you, by the way, Arlene was legendary in our family. Arlene, it is, it is absolutely... A historic scientific fact that my cousin Arlene did not eat after the time she was weaned till well into her 19th year was not known to eat anything her she was her legend was a picky eater you ever heard the expression a picky eater you damn right she was picky she never picked anything she just sat and looked mad well like many converts my cousin Arlene is a great example of the convert now now, uh, you, you, we all know that the worst is a convert. I mean, the worst kind of a, of a, of a convert. It, you, it's well known that somebody who takes up Catholicism after a life of being, uh, you know, a Buddhist or a Hindu or something or, or an atheist, he becomes a fanatic. Uh, the guy who is a, who is a dedicated uh, capitalist who suddenly takes up communism, he becomes an absolute fanatic. Oh, well, the drinker is, well, that's a, that's a physical problem. That's something else. But I'm talking about somebody who takes up an alien philosophy. The convict, the, the, the convert becomes uh, a real cuckoo bird about it, right? Well, all right, my cousin Eileen was a legendary convert. But my cousin Eileen did not eat until well into her 19th year. She was recognized as a, a par excellence picky eater. In fact, I can always remember whenever the entire, you know, the family was coming over for like a Thanksgiving dinner or something, my mother would say, oh, what am I going to feed Arlene? Well, Arlene was worse than a hummingbird with, uh, with constipation. Uh, she, uh, the, 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 every, uh, uh, no matter what it was, she'd go, mm, make that face. You know, that, mm. Oh, I love people like that. See? Mm. And they don't bother to hide it. Mm. You know, there's at least five people that I have not had dinner with for at least uh, you know, five years. Because one time, you know, I invite him over, have dinner, and I'll go pick something, it's a big deal. And they go, hmm, well, you know Frank doesn't eat water, Nobby. So, you know, and I say, yeah, you know. 
Well, anyway, Cousin Arlene was a famous picayere. Well, for some strange reason, she started to go to college, and she became a convert to Edie. Within a year and a half, she had gained like 200 pounds. As a matter of fact, uh, prior to this point, it was recognized that my cousin Arlene could wear a size one-and-a-half dress. She, she, she had a profile, believe me, like a, like a, uh, like a pole vaulting pole held upright. <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then she number eight, see? Well, then all of a sudden, in, in her 19th year, while in her sophomore year at the University of Chicago, the message came through. She became a dedicated cuckoo bird. In fact, eight night and day, began to write cookbooks. She wrote three cookbooks. Okay. So uh, these are these are uh, legends within the family. I mean, and, and now that would be a private reference. So my mother would say, she's a worse eater than Arlene. Well, we would know exactly what she meant. And now, that would not mean anything to you, Jerry, or to you, Barney, if I said, uh, you know, that the... If I said to you, uh, uh, if, now, for example, if I, if I just said uh, with that, if I, if I said, Jerry Strobridge is worse than Uncle Charles, you would know nothing about that, would you? Uncle Charles was a legendary blowhard. Okay? Now, do you understand? <laughs> this is W.O.R. New York. <laughs> now, these were private things that were always discussed in the family. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, all right. On, on the subject of... <laughs> we better get off this subject before we get into real deep water here. Would you please? Hey, I'm going to get you another Valentine. On the house. Yeah, some oil. Not Valentine Bark Beer is now available, by the way. Feldstaff Brewing Corporation, St. Louis, Missouri, and other cities. See, I'm doing it in the style of the commercial. It says right here, it's just doing style of the commercial. You know, like you got a mouthful of tapioca pudding. You're blowing it out your nose. Yeah, Beer and Pint Bark Bee is now available. And you know, practically all the commercials today, national commercials are done in a, in a pseudo-New York voice for some crazy reason. I wonder what this means to a guy living in Eulalie, Mississippi. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, nevertheless, though, now, now you see, what, you want to know about my Uncle Charles? Legendary. Uh... Some performers are, are better than others, and uh, before we get on with the story of Uncle Charles, a magnificent performer, Uncle Charles, when you can understand the relationship between Charles and Jerry right away. Uh, we have here tonight the House of Chance. Indeed. Uh, I heard a guy the other night trying to do his imitation of Charlie Chan, a seconding. Seconding. Some of these guys that, that, that uh, get on uh, TV particularly and do their, their fake, uh, uh, quote, impressions, Make me wonder who the hell. The, the only way they can get by with it is that nobody remembers what the original sounded like. <laughs> you know. Well, I I saw an old Charlie Chan movie the other day, and uh, Charlie Chan said the following statement, and I thought it was uh, again another great example of the wisdom of Charlie Chan. While standing there, uh, some guy says uh, there were there were three or four guys trying to figure out the clues to the murder, and one of them says, "Well, it looks like." Uh, he didn't know what he was doing. Looks like he must have done that without thinking. And at that point, uh, Charlie Chan says, History is full of men who did not do right thing because of not thinking. Many times, Napoleon make mistake 
Do to not think. True. That little cape around Moscow was a fiasco. And uh, to me, this was a, you know, quite a, and that's the way he talked. He says, because uh, he did not talk like a Chinese, he talked like Sidney Toller, fooling a Chinese, which was very different. And he would do it this way. He would say, well, for example, if he were to do the House of Chan commercial, he would say, I highly recommend to number one son, House of Chan. Very good oriental food from native land, most honored native land. I must give to you, however, my profoundest apologia. Must apologize, House of Chan, have good food, but only Chinese food. Doesn't that sound like him? Yeah, you know. And then, then he'd say, say this, he would say, uh, I personally recommend House of Chan have developed huge middle from House of Chan food. Most honorable servant beg to apologize for large girth. Okay. However, mysterious cue, mysterious clue to be found in martini served at House of Chan. Martini much better than ordinary Chinese restaurant House of Chan. Must have Western training. Must be man at bar who knows mysterious West. Ah, we work on that. Come, number one son, order martini, and we investigate. <laughs> so uh, for those of you who are, like to try the House of Chan, I'd like to, you like to way I do that, House of Chan? Very good. I'd like to recommend a visit to House of Chan, uh, found on corner of most auspicious neighborhood, 52nd Street and 7th Avenue. Neighborhood full of many interesting characters. House of Chan, 35 years in the same neighborhood, must mean doing something right. As Confucius say, 35 years in the same neighborhood mean egg for young good. <laughs> so, uh, food is good there. It's 35 years, House of Chan, 52nd. I'll translate Mr. Chan there. What was Mr. Chan's middle name? That was his first name. Only in one episode does he relate his middle name. Now that's a piece of trivia that's worth of thinking about. And what was his official position? What was he really? What was what was his job? He wasn't just a freelance uh, investigator. What was he? That was the original uh, Hawaii Five O. He would hand his card out. He'd say, uh, beg to apologize, my card, please, Inspector Chan, Honolulu Police Department. Remember that? Uh, this is, uh, that's right. Uh, Inspector Sergeant, Inspector Detective, Honolulu Police Department, on special assignment. So uh, it's a 52nd and 7th. Now, let's see. We get <laughs> that's the House of Chad. Let's see. How about the how about the laying that Mazda on me there, please? I'll, I'll accompany it, please. If I will. I'll keep you the top lot. He turns green and tar with his dial looking real and mean. So I stick on the gas and fire like a shot. Man, this Mazda sure is hot. It's an engine goes, but the Mazda goes. Goes. 
I just came back. I, I played a show up at Tufts University. And in that area up there, it's up around Boston. And uh, I came back to the motel. And they were having an all-night Charlie Chan festival. And uh, one of them was, the one I saw was, they're, they're so, <laughs> there's a curious, uh, uh, ingenuous quality to them. They really are funny. And yet, they're very entertaining to watch. With Charlie Chan and Rio. That was a goodie. Uh, another one, if you ever get a chance to see it, if you, it because it, it has some stuff in it that I think is remarkable stuff. You know, I, I feel, really, basically, I feel that in many cases, unofficial type things that are done during any time, uh, any time, our time, any time, unofficial things, things which are not really uh, given much... Uh, importance, nobody thinks much about them, often have things in them that have more significance ultimately than, say, something that uh, is much more self-conscious and is considered great work of art and so on. For example, now I'll give you a little example of this. Charlie Chan at the Olympics. Now, I happened to see that just about three or four months ago. Again, it was one of those things that just came on late, late show. It wasn't even announced. You know, sometimes some films are so down the, the scale of, of uh, critical values, people, nobody says anything about them, that you'll see listed in the paper, it'll just say, film. <laughs> they don't even tell you what it is. I mean, no such, it's film. Uh, so I, I'm just sitting there doing something, and all of a sudden this film came on. That's what you call film. And uh, it came on after the preparation age, man, and all that jazz you get late at night. You know, here comes this film. And, uh, and it was grainy, black and white. And you could see the, you know, the, the opening credits. And uh, the credits even had a certain period quality to them. They looked like there were big letters written, Charlie Chan at the Olympics. And, oh, but I'm a Yeah, the Olympics, see. So I, I, I said, gee, that's great. Charlie Chan at the Olympics. Well, I, I, at first I didn't look at it very much. You see, I, I, I was just, uh, I was doing something else. And it, was, it was on there. And it turns out that the story of Charlie Chan at the Olympics involved the following things. I'm not going to be caught up with the plot, but basically it was this, that there was some kind of a mysterious thing that was going to, they were going to try to sabotage the U.S. Olympic team, the, the bad guys, whatever they were, right? And the U.S. Olympic team, all these Olympic-type people, were going over to the Olympics 
on a steamship. You know, something like uh, the, the Queen Elizabeth, one of these big ocean liners that they had. And they were going, the whole team was traveling on this thing. And, and there was uh, scenes of them going on the boat, and you could see this great big ocean liner. Now, that was interesting in itself, because the whole idea of transatlantic ocean travel, where people would just normally take the ocean liner if they were going to Europe, is now no longer with us. This is it. We think only of, of boats these days for cruises. Well, the the uh, the boat took a certain number of days to get over there. It takes uh, whatever it took, five days, six days, or whatever it took to get from New York to London on this boat. Well, the plot hung on the fact that Charlie Chan had to get over there faster than they did. Now, how did they do this? At that time, he couldn't run down and you know call Pan Am. He couldn't rush out and get a TWA ticket. No, no, listen. No, no way. So this is where the interesting stuff came in. Charlie Chan and his number one son and uh, somebody else booked passage on the Hindenburg, which was the great Nazi-operated German transatlantic dirigible that sailed across the ocean. And, and most people, you know, you hear stories of the great... Uh, explosion of the of the Hindenburg and we see pictures. That's the only thing that most people know about it. They just think that it came over here and blew up. Well, actually, from, from all historical accounts, and don't immediately write me and say, I'm, that was way before my time. I was a little tiny kid at that point. So you better you better accept that fact. But the, the, the I'm fascinated with air. Uh, I'm the pilot. I'm fascinated with all anything you do with, with flying and and I read a great deal of historical stuff about it. And the Hindenburg at the time was a great transatlantic ship that sailed the oceans. It went to South America. It made hundreds of trips, by the way. That, that thing was not experimental. It made hundreds of trips down to, to Rio and Brazil. Uh, and it could stay aloft for something like 10 or 12 or 15 days and sail thousands of miles that time. Remember, it traveled pretty good clip. It traveled 100, 100 and some odd miles an hour with windage and everything behind it. So this this thing could sail around the world without even once mooring. And it was very luxurious. They had staterooms, private staterooms with great glass windows where they could look down and see this whole sea below them. Do you know that in, in, uh, in the Hindenburg, they even had special, they had a string orchestra that traveled with them. This was really, it was, it was treated exactly like an ocean liner of the period, not like a, what we would consider an airliner was an ocean liner, and the captain of it was a naval captain. He was a he was a German Navy captain, and they were all, it was all purely nautical aboard this thing, not aeronautical, but nautical. And and they kept lookouts and the whole thing. And guys were in the various motor pods, and they had telephones back and forth. This tremendous, enormous thing. And and in the ship, uh, they had they had this the, the main salon famous salon of the of the Hindenburg was very uh, what we would call today ultra modern design. As a matter of fact, it, it had been designed by the school of German design known as the Bauhaus School, which was uh, of the early twenties, and as a matter of fact, is still considered the very modern uh, chrome finished furniture with the black, very anti uh, romantic, the very elegant stuff. Bauhaus School is a classical school of functional design. Okay. And so this was a very modern thing inside, and uh, it was it was it was starkly functional but beautifully modern. 
had big sheets of glass, curved glass, where you could look down. And the, the, in the salon, they had designed a piano, because after all, this was an airship, and it, uh, it operated on, on uh, buoyancy, operated on the fact that hydrogen, which is what they used in that ship, not helium, but hydrogen, uh, which is extremely explosive. Uh, hydrogen was, uh, is lighter than air, and of course rises. So uh, they had to be careful of weight. So in this ship, they had a piano, full-size piano, but it was made out of magnesium. Now, how do you like that? It was to be light, and the piano played, and, and, and this was, and, and the instruments that the guys played, like the violin, was an aluminum magnesium violin, and they played a, an aluminum magnesium bass. They had classical instruments, and so they would play this Viennese string music and stuff, <laughs> and they made this movie, Charlie Chan, in the Olympics. Charlie traveled on this thing, and, and there are, are great scenes aboard the Hindenburg of them having dinner and you can see the and, and at, at the one key scene is when the Hindenburg is sailing along and they are, tri they are high above the ocean liner that they are about to defeat. They're just sailing past it because they took the same sea lanes that the ocean liners did. And so they sail high above whatever the boat was, the Normandy or the Ile de France or whatever the ship was. You could see it down there. And Charlie and, and Key Luke and the all these guys are looking down on the Hinden, uh, <clears throat> looking down from the Hindenburg to this boat, and aboard the boat, the Olympic team is having this fantastic party, <laughs> and it was all based on the premise that one girl. See, a lot of these Charlie Chan movies were based on real cases of the period. One girl who was a famous Olympic performer in that Olympics had been. Uh, she was a she was a real uh, she was a real party type, and she was a heavy drinker, and she got into terrible trouble aboard the ship, having this fantastic parties, drinking a champagne and all that stuff, and got kicked off the Olympic team. That was part of the plot. Now that that kind of stuff was never found in the more uh, highly acclaimed movies of the period. You know, stuff like uh, whatever it is that they are always seeing at the Museum of Modern Art. But I can guarantee you. You did not see uh, any uh, Gary Cooper movies uh, or Jimmy Cagney movies and then shot in the interior of the Hindenburg on an actual flight across the Atlantic. And that's actually what you saw in that film. So if you ever get a chance to see Charlie Chan at the Olympics, it's a remarkable film for that reason. It really is. Uh, there you are. You're sailing in a, in a dirigible. So uh, if you ever see any Charlie Chan movies, watch some of them. There's another series that is also curiously satisfying and that it also has moments of, of uh, fascinating reality. Mr. Moto. Mr. Moto, played by Peter Loy. Mr. Moto. <laughs> Charlie Chan and Mr. Moto, two fake Orientals. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you win some, you lose some. Charlie lost some, he won some. But those he won, he won good. Oh, number one song. This is W.O.R. New York, of course. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the News. <laughs>